Well, good evening to you all. You're all very welcome. My name is Shane Mulhall and the title to the talk tonight is Philosophy and the Purpose of Your Life. And the subtitle is What is the Purpose of Your Life? Now, everything has a purpose and it is in devotion to that purpose that life is fulfilled. All the activities that are enjoyed only make sense are only justifiable in relation to the fulfilment of this purpose. If we are going to Portugal on holidays, there are all sorts of activities that we will be engaged in. So we'll be getting out the passport, buying some suntan oil, and ironing the Levi's. In my case, maybe letting out the Levi's. None of these make any sense unless there is a trip to Portugal. But does a trip to Portugal make sense? What is its purpose? The purpose of any activity of the human being only makes sense in relation to the purpose of the human being. So what is the purpose of man? There has to be something unique in the human being or else we would not have our human form. Each form has its own unique purpose or function. What then is our function? If marriage is our function, then the unmarried cannot be fulfilled. If it is the accumulation of wealth, then the poor cannot be fulfilled. So what is it? One way of considering this is to look at capacity as a means of discovering purpose. Ferraris are not for ploughing because we don't need to plough a field at 200 miles per hour. The capacity reveals the purpose. So what is man's capacity? Knowing that capacity will help reveal the purpose. If our capacity is to love a few, then maybe our purpose is to be a family man or woman. If our capacity is to understand a little, maybe our purpose is to become a function like an accountant or an engineer. And if you understand very, very, very little, then maybe you should become a solicitor or something like that. <laughs> if our capacity is only to enjoy pleasure, then our purpose will be to serve and care for the body so that it yields the maximum pleasure for as long as is possible. Now, Marsilio Ficino, the Italian philosopher, says, it was not for small things, but for great that God created men, who, knowing the great, are not satisfied with small things. Indeed, it was for the limitless alone that he created men, who are the only beings on earth to have rediscovered their infinite nature, and who are not fully satisfied by anything limited, however great that thing may be. In the Bible, Jesus says, Be ye perfect, as your Father in heaven is perfect. And in the Old Testament, it says that man is made in the image of God, and elsewhere that he was given dominion over all the creatures of the earth. Now, if these statements are true, then the capacity of man is colossal, and therefore his purpose is enormous. There's an enormous purpose to your life. To each and every one of your lives. 
And it would be a pity not to discover it, and having discovered it, not to fulfill it. Now, we all want to discover the purpose of our lives, but where do we look to in order to discover our purpose? Ordinarily, we look to others, those that we love, envy, or admire. And we copy their purpose as we see it. If, however, we are copying the ignorant, then ignorance is merely perpetuated. Our elders, married, brought children into this world, had careers, accumulated wealth, and so on. So we believed that that would be a purposeful life for us. But they also worried, resented, and feared. And they were disappointed and excited and resigned and jealous. And so these become part of our so-called purposeful lives as well. Now, if you don't want the life of another, do not look to the other to discover the purpose of your life. So, does anybody here want the lives of their parents, or friends, or colleagues? Imagine what it would be like waking up as your neighbour one morning. Would that excite you? Would that be satisfying? particularly when his wife or husband came down the stairs. We don't want other people's lives, so we should not copy them. Now, where would it make sense to look to, to discover the purpose of our lives? We should look to Scripture, or the words of the wise, to discover the purpose of our lives. Because they know the real purpose of man's existence. Now there are two aspects to our true purpose. Because man is one, his purpose ultimately is one. However, there is both a universal aspect and an individual aspect to this one true purpose. Hammers have a universal purpose. They're all for hammering. So what is the universal aspect of the purpose of man? In religious terms, it is often expressed as to find my way back to God. And in philosophical terms, it can be expressed as to come to know who I am in truth. But there's also the appearance of our individuality, and that has to be honoured as well. And since everybody is unique, therefore each one of us also has a unique or special purpose. The Bible speaks of both the universal and unique aspects of the purpose of each person. So, for example, the first commandment, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, all thy soul, all thy mind, and all thy strength, is one way of expressing the fulfilment of man's universal purpose. The story of the talents, on the other hand, where three people are allocated and make use of, or fail to make use of their different numbers of talents, illustrates the fulfilment of, or the failure to fulfill the unique or special purpose. Which of these two purposes comes first?
Again in the Bible it says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all else will be added unto you. So the universal purpose is primary and most important, whereas the individual purpose is secondary. It's supportive of the universal purpose, but subsidiary to it. When the individual purpose becomes primary, then it is our enemy. And when it is secondary, then it's our friend. Now, what is life like under ignorance? Well, under ignorance, man forgets his universal purpose. And then his only purpose in life becomes his individual purpose. But without fulfilling the universal purpose, the individual purpose cannot be fulfilled. The individual purpose becomes distorted or twisted. So it all goes wrong and we live with varying degrees of lack of fulfillment. We continually try to make our individual purpose more meaningful, more satisfying, but without knowledge of our universal purpose, it's doomed to failure. Aware of our individual purpose and asleep to our universal purpose, the individual purpose totally dominates our lives. And instead of being servant to and supportive of our primary purpose, now it's master of our lives. And we are then slaves to our individuality. With the excessive attention to individuality, our desires multiply. With multiplication of desires, we become multi-purposeful. The result of this multiplicity is many things undertaken and very few finished or fulfilled to any level of real satisfaction. And also, the greater the number of desires, the more they will be in conflict with each other. So, with multiplication of desires, we become divided against ourselves. For example, we want to never experience hunger, so we snack all day long. And at the same time, we would like to be thin. We want to get up late and still meet no traffic on the way to work. We want to pay less taxes, but get more and more services from the government. Because of the excess emphasis on our individuality, not only are we divided against ourselves, but we are divided against our fellow man. That which serves the individual purpose prolongs the experience of life only as an individual. It ensures perpetual motion and no rest. If there was no place for Christ to rest his head on this earth, why do we think that we would be so lucky as to find a place of rest on this earth? Under ignorance, the purpose of life would be related to the limited things of the creation. The individual is of the creation and is therefore also limited. But having some deep memory of his limitless true self, he has a natural desire to expand, to rediscover his limitlessness. But in ignorance, he seeks to become limitless by trying to gain all the limited things of the creation. 
And it simply does not work. And that is why Christ said, What should it profit a man if he should gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So for how long every day is there no profit to our existence? And to date, has your life been a story of profit or loss? Are we effectively all Nama cases in waiting? And it's a very tough question to ask. Are you in truth richer now than you were when you were a child? So would you like to find out? Whether your story or the story of your life has been a story of profit or loss. Well just consider this. Do you have more love in your heart now than when you were a child? Do you have more interest in everything in the creation than when you were a child? Do you have more awe and wonder than when you were a child? Do you have more devotion, more faith in people than when you were a child? More courage, more endurance now than you did have when you were a child. Well, if you've less now, then your story has been one of loss to date. What do we give in exchange for our soul? Well, from moment to moment, we exchange the eternal for the transient, the limitless for the limited, and the real for the unreal. Not only do we not gain anything, but we lose everything because we forget our true purpose. Such is the rule of ignorance. Now, if we see our purpose as related to things of the creation, such as husband, wife, children, wealth, fame, etc., then a feeling of dependence arises in relation to them. Under ignorance of the real purpose of life, we develop a fixation for independence however there is no independence for individuals in this creation it's impossible as individuals we are totally interdependent in relation to others and if that's not clear to us then imagine how would you fare on your own on a desert island you might remember Tom Hanks's method of dentistry in Castaway, where he had to take a rock and bash it against his teeth as a means of removing a bad tooth. That's what the life of independence is like. You get to do your own heart operations. <laughs> Another effect of this individual existence under ignorance is the need to justify it. This is caused by a deep down doubt as to whether this individuality of mine is who I truly am. Now we do not seek to justify our humanity because it's not in doubt. We do not go around proclaiming that we are human. On meeting someone at a party, we do not say to them, by the way, just to let you know, I'm a human being. We wouldn't say that. Because nobody doubts it. 
However, much of the day is spent going around loudly proclaiming our individuality, trying to justify our individual existence to ourselves and others. Now, when our actions no longer make sense to us, then we create all sorts of false duties to try and make sense of them, such as, I do it for my husband or wife's sake. If it wasn't for the children, it's to make my mother happy. It's so that I can rest in the future. All of this is to justify the unjustifiable. And with this need to justify my existence comes the effort to do, to compete, to be different, to be better. So I must do. And the belief is, if I don't do, the whole show will stop. However, when we drop dead, the whole show goes on without us. It has never stopped for anyone, and it never will. If you happen to die early in the week, and your funeral is on a Wednesday, well then about 200 people will take a half day off work to celebrate your passing. If it's on a Saturday, well then about 50 people will turn up. There's no point in wasting a good day at the weekend to turn up at your funeral. You think I'm joking. (laughs) Trust me, don't have your funeral on a Saturday if you want a big funeral. There's a lot of good things on television on Saturday afternoons. Being the same as others brings my individuality into doubt. and Thus, there are tremendous efforts to be different. Now, not so different that I'm considered odd, but different enough to be considered interesting and special. So, if I bought a new suit, I like people to notice that I have bought a new suit but I don't like them to stare at it with a sort of furrowed brow. We glorify these efforts to be different by saying that I'm being true to myself. But most of the time, it's simply being true to my false self. One of the effects of the domination of individuality is that everyone and everything is other than me. And thus everybody is a stranger to me. I don't really know anybody And nobody really knows me, not deep down. To overcome the resultant isolation, we then collect a partner or family and friends, etc. But who is family and who is friend? Who's on the inside and who's on the outside? The individual creates all sorts of absurd divisions. Catholic, Protestant, young, old, rich, poor black, white, educated, uneducated. For those who are supposedly identical with me or reasonably similar to me, there is one response. And for those who are not, there is another response. So compare our response to seeing a member of our own family really hungry with our response to a stranger who is equally hungry. Having sought a separate identity, we then spend most of our time seeking to be with those with whom we are identical. If we could only find people identical to us, we believe we would then be happy. Of course, I can never find anybody with whom I am identical 
because I'm unique. There's only one of me. So anyway, what I do is I date a woman, and during the courtship, we pretend to be identical. I listen to all the things she talks about. She watches me play rugby, or watches football on the television with me. Having convinced ourselves that we are sufficiently identical, we get married. And then the shock comes. She's a total stranger. I cannot understand her, and she can't understand me. And the differences that were set aside during courtship now all manifest in their full glory. The hard work of marriage begins. That is, of constantly trying to reconcile our differences. All this trouble in seeking identical individuals is all for nothing. There are none. In truth, there is only one thing identical in all of us, and that's our true self. Finding that which is truly identical leads to our real purpose, and thus our real happiness. This is found in the self and nowhere else. Now, having forgotten our true identity, we create a false identity. And maintaining this false identity becomes the central purpose of our life. In a film, when a man suffers from amnesia and does not recognize his wife and family, we all think it's a tragedy. His relationships have gone, his wife is a stranger to him, he doesn't recognize his children, and he cannot remember how to do his job. However, the truth is, we are all suffering from amnesia because we have all forgotten who we are in truth. As a result, everyone is effectively a stranger to us. We are even strangers unto ourselves. Now, what is purpose like under ignorance? Well, our supposed purpose under ignorance is all so mad and so obviously not true, and yet it dominates our lives. There are just so many purposes, and they're all very small. Now, many, many small purposes do not add up to a large life. They add up to a small but very busy life. So let us look at what we are aiming at, or our purpose, on a moment-to-moment basis. It might include such things as doing well at work, or pleasing people, or being popular, or not missing out on anything, or doing what is expected of us, of not disappointing people, being happy, or maybe having time for myself, or sharing time with others, wanting to be useful. And the list goes on and on and on. Most of the things we want, we don't really know why we want them anymore, or to what extent we want them. So exactly how much time do we want for ourselves? Too much and we're lonely, too little and there's no space in our lives. And how useful do we want to be? We want to contribute, but we don't want to be exploited or exhausted. 
Also, we want to feel that we've really lived. But what does that mean? Does it mean we have to have done lots of exotic things, like scuba diving off the west coast of Ecuador? But there's a part of me which would just like a simple, quiet life. Although we want many friends, we often try to refuse invitations. Being sociable is just too much for us. And although we want to be unique, we hate to be disagreed with. And we then take back what we've just said. Although we want to be useful to the world, we shrink back from taking on lots of responsibility. Although we want the full depths of human experience, we are cautious with our love and attempt to retain a certain distance, a certain separation from those that we say we love. So concerned are we with ourselves that we become dependent on others' opinions and often are in dread of offending people or isolating ourselves. Unable to forget the ego, our false self, we often doubt whether what we are doing is right or not. So I don't know whether you've ever had the experience, you know, you find that you leave the house every day at 8 o'clock and at 8.15 you pull into the same newsagents and you buy the paper and you do the same crossword. And one day it strikes you, I've been doing this for 10 years. And am I going to do it for the next 30 years? Is this going to be my life? So we doubt whether we're living our lives truly or not. Despite all our aims and purposes, we drift through life, swept in all directions by influences from customs and fashion, swayed by whatever standards are uncritically accepted from others. We fear our free will being limited. However, we're driven by the crowd by the need to earn money, and by keeping up with our friends and fashions. For example, who was that first person that got decking in Ireland? If I ever meet him, I'm going to kill him. <laughs> and ever since then, everybody has to have decking. And so we spend our lives slipping on wood and surfaces during the summer or winter. Or hot tubs. Who thought about that one? It would be a good idea to have hot tubs in your back garden. Or apartments in Bulgaria that are now worth a quarter of what you paid for them. And you never go there. But somebody gets them. And we think, I should have one as well. We need others to support our purposeless life. And so rely on them for judgment and understanding. You never hear a child say, I ought to, or I have to. But we are full of ought to's and have to's. Think of how many things you have to do that you don't really want to do. And most of these ought to's and have to's are determined by what other people think of us, and not by what we truly believe in. If we did not do what others did, nor what was expected of us, what would guide us? What sort of a life would we lead, and how different 
would it be from the life we're leading now? Without any fundamental purpose, we believe that what happens is what matters. Where we go and what we do, and the good times that we have. At the same time, we are always a little distracted from living our life now. We are often caught up with the past or the future. And not having a purposeful life, we spend a lot of time in our minds. In fact, we avoid a lot of our lives by being somewhere else in our minds while our lives are going on. If anybody paid a penny for our thoughts, they would not get good value. Whenever anybody asks you, what are you thinking about? What you say is, oh, nothing. And you're right. (laughs) You're absolutely right. You're thinking about nothing. We think vaguely about things, casually going over what we're going to do, what so-and-so just said, and whether we will have a small or large bowl of soup for lunch. It's all very profound stuff. Rather than ongoing silence and rest, we often look for something to think about, that we ought to be thinking about something. So if you're waiting for a bus or a friend, you think, what will I think about now? As if you should be thinking about something. I should be thinking about something, otherwise I would be wasting time. But what I think about is a waste of time. And this becomes so habitual that even when there's something interesting happening, we find ourselves distracted by mundane things. Now this is an exaggerated situation, but let's say you adore the opera. And yet it's been years since you've got to the opera. And somebody invites you and it's La Traviata which is your favourite opera because you always cry at the end it's such a sad, sad story and you adore it and there's a particular aria which just opens your heart and so you dress up to the hilt and you say now when it gets to this aria I'm going to really listen to it because I adore this aria anyway about three days before the opera you buy a cat female cat and just when the aria begins the thought crosses your mind is it right to neuter a cat do I have the moral right to stop this cat having kittens and you spend the entire aria thinking about neutering cats and you don't get to hear the aria at all We become spectators of life, mainly discussing, but not fully participating. We're like tourists, always observing from a distance, not really belonging to wherever we are. If we see films of savages, we envy the intensity of their emotions. Ours are so placid and flat. We are vaguely interested in lots of things, but passionate about very little. We make our decisions on partial information and therefore are liable to reverse them on the slightest provocation. So we cannot be relied on by others, nor can we rely on ourselves. 
We become envious of other people, thinking their good fortune is mere luck, whereas ours is fully deserved. We have lots of wants, which if attained, we believe would give more purpose to our lives. So we want to be able to talk well, to have more money, to understand more of what's going on in the world, to do things because we really want to do them, not because we have to please other people. And we want to have full experiences and to be thought of as unique and to feel at ease with people we meet. So we've all these wants, but we make no real effort to make any of them happen. They are hazy, pleasant, idle dreams. We can easily make a list of them, and it's endless. But we cannot decide which to fulfill, and we know that fulfilling all of them is not possible for us. So none of them happen. None of them satisfy as worthy of making the central purpose of our lives, and so the energy is not there to do anything about them. So the question is, do you have a central purpose to your life? And if you do, what is it? And should it be at the centre of your life? Now if you don't have a worthy central purpose, then your life will lack real meaning and will not truly satisfy. So the question is, does your life have real meaning? And does it fully or truly satisfy? And if it doesn't, it means that your life does not have a true central purpose. Because our lives are fundamentally purposeless, We are always full of purposes, always driving ourselves to do more things, read more books, learn more languages, see more people, and particularly not to miss out on anything, piling up experience after experience. So you go to Paris or Rome or something like that, and you try and do Paris in 48 hours, which is a remarkable thing to do to a major city of the world, but you try and do it. So you try and see everything, because you just might miss out on something. And you come home absolutely shattered and need a weekend away to rest. (laughs) Now we must always be getting on with this and that, so life is often experienced as a clash of impulses. We are driven to get the most out of life, and this is assumed to be achieved by doing more and more things. We look for variety, not depth, quantity and not quality in our lives. And the fear is that by doing this or that, we will exclude something else. We just might miss out on something. When we are feeling that our lives are inadequate, We make all sorts of resolutions to make them more purposeful. So I go out more, I'm going to eat less, I'm going to exercise more, etc., etc. However, our lives are filled with thousands of broken resolutions. 
So consider, how many times in your life have you given up biscuits forever? How many times? I will never eat a biscuit again, ever. We make it about 50 times in our lives. So much is started and so little is truly completed. In order to have a purposeful day, we plan and say, I will do this and that and then that and that. However, there's only so much time and energy available to us. Then we are left with the feeling of too many things to be done and not enough time to do them. All these lightly formed intentions mount up to a hopeless burden of unreached goals. So we are pervaded by the sense of failure, the feeling that I have not made the most of my life. Now we may have accepted our own lives as having been wasted, but we cannot bear others to think of them as wasted. At other times the mind puts up endless excuses and deceits to explain our failures. It makes up the most remarkable reasons to explain our actions or desires. So if only my teachers had recognized my potential, what a life I could have had. But nobody believes these reasons, particularly not you. Having such individual purposes, we are indignant when things do not go our way, as if the creation should unfold exactly according to our plan. We resent people not adapting themselves to suit our purposes. So why can't everybody like Indian food when I want to go to an Indian restaurant? We believe that people are behaving in a way deliberately to annoy us. So that person doing 30 miles per hour in a 30 mile per hour zone is doing it deliberately just to delay me is the only rational explanation for them being lawful. We sometimes exaggerate our upset so that people will then feel sorry for us and soften their stance and adapt themselves in order to fulfil our plans. Our assessment of our lives is full of opposites. At times it's deemed to be excellent and at other times it's a complete waste of time. Normally, the gap between these two thoughts is about five minutes. We are prone to burst into rage about absolutely nothing. So we drop our keys into a puddle of water and we say, oh, for God's sake, why does everything have to happen to me? I have to bend the whole way down there to pick it up and come all the way back up again. Tiny little things enrage us. We can become extremely nervous when there's really nothing to fear. We busy ourselves with minor details when vital issues are neglected. We enjoy the life of a mean-minded person preoccupied with their own interests. We end up going around, not really knowing what we want, vaguely making the best of things. We dream about what we would like to happen, but never seriously thinking 
about how we could make it happen. We hope that it will all work out for the best and then suffer bouts of it all going wrong. A never-ending cycle of optimism followed by pessimism. There is much deep-down mental discomfort in our lives which is not really known to be there but is simply suffered by us. If you've ever seen the face the dead face of someone that you've loved what you're struck by is how relaxed their face is. How unbelievably relaxed their face is. My father died when he was 32 and when I saw his face on the dead body I realised that I had never seen his face relaxed. He'd always carried these tensions. Then there are things which get in the way of fulfilling the individual purpose of my life and these I hate. So I hate to be ignored or my opinions not being really valued or making a fool of myself or being laughed at or being copied in my attempts to be original or being made to feel conspicuous or being made use of. This is another endless list and this one we cannot eliminate. Now we get on to the depressing part of the talk. (laughs) Now, anyway, that's the bad bit over with, okay? What is useful? I mean, not all of this applies to all of us. That would be impossible, or at least you'd probably slash your throat if it did. But there'd be certainly some of it which applies to us. So the question that we're left with is, how are we to live a life of true purpose. Well, as said before, the purpose of life is the same for all, but it has two aspects. The primary aspect, which is the same for all, and is the centre of human existence, is to discover the truth about myself, or self-realisation, as it is often called. Having first realised the truth about myself, the secondary aspect which is unique for everybody, is then to express this universal truth in harmony with our individual nature. Self-realization is nothing to do with creating shiny individuals, but it is to do with dissolving the limits and isolation of the individual. Meditation is the master key to bring this about. There is nothing more effective. It is the most effective tool known to man to help him fulfil both aspects of the purpose of his life. So the practice of meditation is for everyone. Now there are many other practices which also help with fulfilling the purpose of our lives and we're going to consider some of these in turn. The first thing, which is extremely challenging, is to surrender results. Leon McLaren, the man who founded the School of Philosophy worldwide, said in one of his lectures that the essence of individual existence is a desire for a result. So we should surrender the desire for a result. 
And this is how to counteract the limits of our individuality. There must be action, but it is not undertaken for premeditated results, but simply because it's there to be performed. So paper is picked up not so that we may have a clean house, but because it's there to be picked up. Actions by their very nature must have results. And these will either be the results of the Absolute, or God, or those of individuals. If the individual gives up the desire for a result, then the result will be a result of the Absolute. There cannot be an action without a result. So why all the concern for results? If we do not look for a result, the result will take care of itself. The Absolute, our God, does not have wrong results, only the individual has. When the individual's desire for a result is absent, then the true result follows inevitably. So we should stop trying to achieve and simply be willing to participate. The idea in this life is to achieve absolutely nothing, but to live fully. This is how the child lives and see how happy it is. So try purposelessness and let things happen. Stop striving after happiness, but be happy. Be fulfilled now. Stop pursuing happiness. We only pursue something which is running away from us. And happiness is not running away from us. So do not pursue it. Under ignorance, in truth, we all think we are running after happiness. But under ignorance, we are in fact all running away from happiness. So let life come to us. Stop chasing it. When we do this, that which was boring will become interesting and that which was mundane will become profound. As individuals, we are all maintained by the Absolute. So we don't have to maintain ourselves. We believe that if we strive, we get something. And this is not true. Now, this is most important. When you strive, we believe we get something. It's not true. When we strive, we get something else. We're always getting something else. How is this so? Well, the desire of the Absolute is bliss, knowledge, freedom and prosperity for every single person. So is this what we get? Or are we getting something else? If we are getting something else, this is because of all our striving. So just stop it. 
The second factor which can help us to fulfill the purpose of our lives is to let go. Every object in this creation is seeking unity. Everything is rushing to unity. This is the nature of things. A stream rushes to the ocean, to unity, without effort. It simply does not resist. Man is the only creature that resists being what he is. He is the only one who wakes up in the morning and says, I don't want to join in my life today. Imagine if a dog woke up in the morning and said, I don't really feel like barking today. We are the only one who doesn't want to participate in life. Only man is distracted from his true purpose. There's no need to force anything in life. Just go with true nature. The domination of individuality leads to resistance and going contrary to nature. The objects of this creation are not there to be pursued. They are not for our possession, nor are they for our satisfaction. That's not the reason they exist. They are there as a reminder to awaken the mind to reveal the existence of our true self. The Son is a reminder of the Father. The objects in the universe are a reminder of the Creator or the Self. If you were to go home this evening and in your front garden there was a bicycle, you know, a strange bicycle, didn't belong to the family, you would ask yourself two questions. Who put that there? And to whom does that bicycle belong? So why don't we ask this question all the time? Who put all of this here? Who does it belong to? Who does the creation belong to? Ramatirtha said, He alone really loves who can make of every object a stepping stone to God or a mirror to see the self. Only a blind fool loves anything except God. Worldly love is like committing adultery in a temple of God. If we have not found our true love, we care for many things. On finding our true love, we then care for nothing other than our beloved. But without meeting our beloved, we cannot let go our other cares. Likewise, without discovering or meeting our true self, we cannot let go the things of the world. And that is why all the philosophical or religious practices are to establish the memory of the truth about the self in our minds and hearts. Now then, this is very important. Then, the cares of the world fall away by themselves. You don't have to solve any of your problems or cares. They simply will fall away by themselves. When a baby 
thrusts his tiny body and innocent mind into the arms of its mother, all the rest and comfort of the world is his. He has no anxiety left. In a storm, in the rain, it makes no difference to him as he is with his mother. If we let go our identification with individuality, then we will rest in the self and the storms of life will not harm us. The third factor which helps us to fulfill the purpose of our life is to be fearless. So there's a real need to be fearless. But unfortunately, we're afraid to be fearless. We're all afraid to be fearless. We believe that if we let go everything, everything will go. And we will remain with nothing. In fact, it's the opposite that happens. It is only the false I, what I think I am, that goes and everything else remains. All that disappears on realization of the truth of myself is the imaginary I, the ego, and not the whole creation. The body, mind and heart remain but the limits of individuality do go. Now another fear that we have is the annihilation of our individuality. Why do we fear the annihilation of the individual? The belief is, if I let go everything, I will be a nobody. However, every night in deep sleep, we let go everything and the individual is temporarily annihilated. In deep sleep there are no problems, no possessions, no past or future, no deprivation, just simple contentment. We all enjoy the peace and rest that arise in deep sleep. Well, self-realization is just the same except that which is enjoyed in deep sleep is now enjoyed limitlessly on realization of your true self. So do not entertain this fear because it has no basis. Be courageous in the pursuit of truth. Ordinarily we are so timid in our approach to discovering the truth. Merely dipping our toes in but unwilling to be divinely reckless. And so it's a very good question to ask. Are you willing to be divinely reckless with regard to the pursuit of truth? The price of truth is the giving up of falsehood. And since falsehood has no value, there's nothing to be afraid of. The fourth factor which helps us fulfill the purpose of our lives is to observe. So bring the individuality under observation. See it as an object, knowing that we are the observing subject. Watch the flow of your mind. Another great sage from India, Sri Maharaj Nisargadatta, says, when the mind feasts 
reality disappears and when the mind fasts, reality enters. So when the mind feasts on this false I, question it. Ask, who is this I? Or for whose sake is this desire? The present moment is an opportunity to dissolve the past. It's not for setting up the future. And this is a very important point. So dissolve the past through observation. Let the future be and realize the truth about yourself. Fifthly, there's a need to make efforts. And here, efforts means constant vigilance. That vigilance which does not allow the false reality of the individual to dominate any moment of our lives. This effort or vigilance does not create anything or do anything, but it does not permit error. Socrates had a voice which spoke to him. It never told him what to do because there is nothing for us to do. But it did tell him what not to do. And in this way, individuality or egoism was banished from his life. Hear the still, small voice within which always guides you. If you are very, very, very still, you'll hear it. You can hear it any time you want to. And it will never let you down. You will never make another mistake again in your life. In a flood, only the dead make no struggle and are carried away by the waters. Where there is consciousness, each and every living thing makes its effort to get out of the flood. Each of us must make our individual efforts to get out of ignorance, or else we will be classified as carcasses while still alive. The sixth factor to help us realize the purpose of our lives is to ask the real question. We are faced with this one fundamental question. Am I this individual or am I the self? What am I? So how may we answer this question? If it is witnessed, if it's known, then it is an object under observation. However, I'm the subject and not an object under observation And thus the object is not my true self. It's time to wake up to this fundamental and indisputable fact. What I imagine myself to be is an object of this creation and not who I truly am. Ramatirta said in one of his poems, The body is a wave on water. If it dies, I am not affected because I am the water. If you know you are the water, you will see water everywhere, and you will love your neighbor as yourself. The individual is not the ultimate reality. It is the self that is real. 
the granting of reality to the individual needs to be taken away from it. This is made possible by questioning it again and again, so that the silent witness is established as my true self. The seventh factor which helps us to discover and realize the purpose of our lives is to learn to play. The Shankaracharya says, the creation is a play. It has no transformative effect and the purpose of creation is to play. Man likes to do, to improve, to own, to accumulate, whereas the child likes to play. So learn to play and play out your life. Do for the joy of doing and not for the purpose of advancement. Enjoy, move on and do not become attached. As Blake says, he who binds himself to a joy to the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives in eternity's sunrise. And finally, in order to help you realize the purpose of your life, you need to be true to yourself. So forget about others and their opinions. Do not live for others. Live for yourself by being true to yourself. Mother Teresa put it beautifully, people are often unreasonable, illogical and self-centered. Forgive them anyway. If you are kind, people accuse you of selfish ulterior motives. Be kind anyway. If you are successful, you will win some false friends and some true enemies. Succeed anyway. If you are honest and frank, People may cheat you. Be honest and frank anyway. What you spend years building, someone may destroy overnight. Build anyway. If you find serenity and happiness, they may be jealous. Be happy anyway. The good you do today, people will often forget tomorrow. Do good anyway. Give the world the best you have and it may never be enough. Give the world the best you've got anyway. You see, in the final analysis, it is all between you and God. It was never between you and them anyway. So to conclude, purpose under ignorance is a life of always trying to achieve and always failing to get there, to get to where you can truly rest. On the other hand, the true purpose of life is to be yourself. It is total non-achievement. It is simply being, being yourself, and then you are ever at rest, totally content with yourself and life. And this is what we should tell our children. We should tell them not to dedicate their lives to achieving, but to simply be themselves. Being our true self, we then express it in every thought, word and deed in our lives, and thus we live true to ourselves. 
This is how to fulfill the dual aspect of the purpose of our lives. There's another way of considering how we are to participate in life which some might prefer. And this is, let the will of the Absolute, or God, operate through your body, mind and heart. Then there is full participation and life is fully purposeful. So what is the will of the Absolute? Well, as was said before, it is bliss, knowledge, freedom and prosperity for all. So how are we to know the will of the Absolute in any given situation? And it's very simple. To have no desire is to accept the will of the Absolute. So be without desire. With no private desires, we will respond to the will of the Absolute and live our life to the full. And we will have fulfilled the purpose of our life. So may you all fulfill the true purpose of your life. Thank you. So, what questions would you like to ask? Thank you, Shane. And thank you for a great, great lecture. My question relates to what you said about being yourself and your true self is a natural state. Mm. And why, if it's such a natural state, is it so difficult and such a challenge for us to be like that? You know, we compare ourselves and it just doesn't feel that natural, even though that's... Yes. Yeah. Well, it's like this. Let's say we said the natural amount of calories for a person to eat was 2,000 calories or 2,500 if you've been guzzling on 7,000 calories all your life and you then try to reduce it to two, you'll think two is unnatural. you think this is verging on starvation. So the reason why it appears unnatural to us is the power of habit. We've been practicing living in a particular way for so long, it's so deeply ingrained, that when you try to adopt, let's say, a natural way of living, the force of the habit resists and this makes it appear to be unnatural. And the other example would be if you're unfit and you go to a gymnasium and you work out in the gymnasium, a day or two later the muscles in your legs will have seized up and you think, God, exercise is completely unnatural. Look, it's reduced me to a cripple. But the idea is you go on and on and then when you are fit you realise that this is natural. So it's the same thing. Any change of behaviour will produce resistance at the start. And the mind then latches on this and says, oh, well, it couldn't be right then. Look, I'm suffering. But listen to the trainer. <laughs> Who tells you to keep going on that thread now, despite the impending coronary. <laughs> so that's what it is. After a short period of time, that which it has appeared to be unnatural should now be obvious as absolutely natural. That's it. Yes, anybody else? This gentleman here. You just mentioned that the stream went into the lake and it follows an unseen force like gravity. Now, 
overriding nature and animals is an unseen force of instinct that's yeah. driving. Uh, you know, and uh, it would seem that it's the propagation of the race is certainly a force, a natural force, or a natural purpose. And I could compare it to a beehive. Once the beehive continues and there's honey, it doesn't really matter whether there's a few bees die or get lost mm. or missing or anything like that. And it seems to be the natural run of things. You know, if a few bees go missing, it still goes on. The honey's produced and the other bees come. That would be similar. There seems to be something like that in nature, a natural propagation of the race. Mm. And the second point you could broach upon is by making a decision to have no more children, for example, would stop the suffering. Because to bring 100 children into the world, it's quite likely 20-30% of them will suffer will not be happy. You know, an earthquake or disease or handicaps or something, we'll get them. Like the beehive. So you stop all hundred then, is that the idea? Well, I mean, the thing is, that a fair proposition? Completely unfair. (laughs) (laughs) Man should not be ruled by probability or statistics. Statistics do not apply to any individual. So, the fact of the matter is, it's not obligatory for 20 or 30% to be miserable. Man has the capacity to be happy. So, he should fulfil his capacity. And it's not a matter of cutting back and, as you say, let's say there are 20% who are going to be miserable. You don't know which 20%. So you have to cut back on all hundred. And that won't work. If you take the Catholic Church, for example, the state that you know that people are born as sinners, with sin, or original sin, and the end day is a day when the earth's break and the seasons come. So yeah. you come in as a sinner and you're going to face a rough day at the day of judgment. That's the end of creation. The idea is to get out before that day. <laughs> <laughs> You've raised lots of points there. What does it mean to be born as a sinner? And what does the end of creation mean? They're talks in themselves. Since you've raised Christian or Catholic teaching, according to Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is within you. Now, it's a present tense statement. It is within you. And let's say we say that these walls are painted magnolia. Or if I'm trying to be very sophisticated, they're painted biscuit. All right? So let's say they are. It should be possible for you to cognize that they are magnolia or biscuit. If the kingdom of heaven is within you, it should be possible for you to discover it. So you should discover it. When you discover the kingdom of heaven within you, the end of this creation may mean nothing to you. Because it's not the end of you. So, Whether you accept it or not, that's the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Just would you comment on the, you know, fighting instinct? No, you don't have to fight instinct. It's a bit like this. Man is a very interesting creature in that he can operate at all levels. So he can operate at the level of animal. He does so when the instinctive intelligence dominates his being. But he also has higher intelligences. And part of the fulfillment of the human function is to bring the instinctive intelligence under the guidance of a higher intelligence. For example, let's say, instinctively, as an embodied being, I would run away from fire. That's absolutely valid. That helps protect this body. 
However, if my wife and children are trapped in a house, and there's a fire, and there's the possibility of helping them to escape, it would be invalid as a human being to run away from that fire. Because there is a higher intelligence or force, let's call it love, and that love in that situation should override that instinctive intelligence and allow a certain scarring of the body in order to save the life of wife and children. So man has that capacity. The instinctive intelligence should serve his higher intelligences. There are times to set it to one side, as in the case of a fire, and there may be times where you would lay down your life for others. So you have to override instinctive intelligence. Man has that capacity, and he should use that capacity. Thank you very much. No problem. Yes, anybody else? Shane, uh, just a question around the universal truth and the individual truth. And children are often used as an analogy. You know, they're content in the present moment. Yes. They're happy. They don't label. They have no desires except to be what they are. Don't you just hate them? Absolutely. <laughs> um, and that I can get, but my question is, are they also living the universal truth? Because as you grow older, you seem to sort of, in your teenager years, forget about religion, then go back in search of it. And we look yes. outside for this universal truth, whether that's Catholicism or Buddhism or whatever. Or yeah. whatever. And my question is really around, are children living the universal truth? Because they even understand what it is. I understand as an individual, they're content and they're happy. They have no labeling of good and bad or whatever. But when does the universal truth or that search for the universal truth come in? And is it in that searching that we lose it and we go outside looking for it? Or Well, first of all, I'm going to just phrase it slightly differently, but I think it makes a point. You could say, not that the children are living truth, but truth is living through the children. They're not commanders of their own knowledge or wisdom. In fact, they don't have wisdom. But there's nothing else operating, so the light of truth simply shines through them. They're not even aware. If you said to a little two-year-old, are you living truthfully? He would just keep playing with his bricks. Right? <laughs> you know. So it is necessary to crystallize it or realize it so that you are living truth rather than it is simply living through you. In the ordinary run of events, which applies to 99.9999999% of all humanity, the ego awakens after a very few years, maybe only two. The ego awakens in the being, and there arises a self-consciousness. So to give you a sense of it, and I'm just going to exaggerate it, Let's say you had a two-year-old son, for example, and you go to the beach. And you say to your two-year-old son, we'll go for a swim, and he's all up for it. And you say, I'm going to race you. Now, you're fully clothed at this stage, and you say, I'm going to race you to the water. You have no chance. Because it will have ripped off its clothes in about 15 seconds and run to the water stark naked you'll be still looking for that ginormous towel <laughs> that protects your decency. And you'll take forever. The reason why is you've got self-consciousness. The child, when it's running down towards the water, is not saying, I am running to this water naked. If you were running towards the water, you would be very conscious. You'd run even faster than you normally run. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> because you would have this self-consciousness i.e. ego consciousness. 
Now, the child doesn't have that at an early age, and this is why, again, you can put a, a little boy child and a little girl child in a bath together. It's not recommended with adults. Right? <laughs> there are different consequences. Now, this self-consciousness or ego-consciousness does arise. And just as with the previous answer, where there is an instinctive intelligence, and that is useful. Nothing in this creation is without use. So that is useful, but it needs to be supportive of, we call it, higher intelligences. The ego consciousness is useful, but not as master, as servant. So, for example, tonight, as I stand here, I'm playing the role of you know, lecturer or speaker. You wouldn't be interested in meeting me as husband. There's only one human being who is, and, and not all the time. Right? <laughs> well, on certain occasions, she enjoys meeting me as husband. All right? Nobody else is interested. That is a sort of a sense of identity. In order to fulfill this function of lecturer, I have to let go other identities. I am father, husband, brother, son. And then the function can be fulfilled. But it must never dominate. Because if it did dominate, let's say it became absolute in my mind, then I would completely isolate myself from you. Because there's only one lecturer in the room. And then I'm completely different than you. And then it's going to be very hard to relate or communicate or unite. But there is a function, you know, there's a form to speaking as opposed to being student or whatever. And so the ego when it works properly, does draw that knowledge of how to play the part. There's no point in me standing here as a human being. One has to stand as speaker. Now, what happens in ignorance is that the ego becomes dominant. So as we get older and older, we begin to seek a special identity. And we don't want to be the same as everybody else. We seek to be quite unique. But this is a miserable existence. So then we try to fulfill the ego existence by having friends and interests and all of these sorts of things. And activities and careers. And they distract us. But the fortunate ones begin to realize there's something wrong in this approach. So to give you an example, when I qualified as an accountant, I had a friend who had a thousand pounds saved up. And I hated him. Because I didn't have a thousand pounds saved up. It was in the opposite direction, multiplied. And I thought, if I could ever have a thousand pounds saved up, I would be so relaxed. <laughs> so secure. Now, at certain stages of my life, I have had a thousand pounds saved up, and multiples thereof. And it didn't bring any security. And I thought if I could earn X amount, that would be enough to satisfy all my desires. Like the donkey with the carrot hanging in front of it, and all that happens is you collapse. The carrot's still there, and you're lying on a treadmill or whatever. If there's a certain amount of wisdom in the mind, or you meet somebody who has transcended this, you're inspired to see, is there another way? Is there another way of living? Perhaps this more, more, more business is not valid until you begin to look. 
And some people will turn to religion, some to philosophy and whatever. And they begin to look in a different way. They are the happy stories, the unhappy ones, you just keep chasing the carrot. And so the last thing you see with the final breath is a very old carrot. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wanted to ask, in asking the question, what is the purpose of your life, and from what you've discussed this evening, should this be something of a profound individual purpose, or is it a hundred little purposes, or is that profound individual purpose, is it matched to this idea of finding out the universal purpose of your life as well? Just say that last bit to me. Are you saying, is the individual purpose, the would, individual would that help you find a universal purpose? No, is it matched to finding the universal purpose? When you say matched to, just explain uh, is, is it found through understanding the universal purpose? Yes. yes. If you really want to discover your individual purpose, you have to find the universal purpose. And it's not a matter of a million little purposes. It's a bit like, and, I, and these are not universal purposes or ultimate purposes, but it gives you a sense of it. You take, say, an Olympic athlete, and they decide that they're going to go for a gold medal in the Olympics. What they will do is they will look at every aspect of their life and select that which supports that goal. So they won't have, you know, 15 pints before the heats. They say that's not on. So they will look to diet and all sorts of things to get all their desires or all their goals or all their activities to support, to come under an umbrella to support that. However, if you do win the Olympics, you have your five minutes of, um, this is amazing, I am a satisfied human being. And that's it, because it doesn't satisfy. Even if you come back for another three or four Olympics, it doesn't satisfy. It will concentrate the being, and it will bring a certain unification to the life, but it's nothing to do with your universal purpose, and only the universal purpose satisfies. Only it satisfies. If you can dedicate yourself to that universal purpose, all your desires, all your activities are facing the same direction. Now that's not normally our experience. So let's say a life where there isn't this universal purpose. You may have a man, and we make it a man, and he loves his wife, and he loves his children. But he also wants to succeed. And he finds that he's caught between the desire and need to care for his wife and children and the demands of the business world. So he's caught. All right? He maybe he spends far too much time at work, but then what he does is he brings her to Barbados for a fortnight. You think that makes up for, you know, the other 48 weeks of neglect. And of course, it doesn't work. So the idea is to get all the, if you want to call it desires, goals, activities, facing the same direction. And there's no one activity in life. So if somebody said, well, the purpose of life is to be a husband, you won't get all the activities of life to support that. Well, actually, if I take my wife, for example, let's say you were to ask my wife, does she love me? And we'll assume that she answers truthfully and she says yes. <laughs> but, but if you ask her, does she want to spend 24 hours, seven days a week with me? You will get a very distinct answer with two letters in it. <laughs> right. Okay? Because to be wife only is not satisfying. And to be mother only 
is not satisfying and to be father only or to be accountant or to be whatever, beach bum, none of them are satisfying only. And a lot of dissatisfying things or unsatisfying things will not add up to satisfaction. That's the point. And we make that mistake. We think, well, I have these things and they bring me a certain amount of happiness. If I could only add this and this and this and this, then I would be fully happy, which you won't be. You're just very greedy. <laughs> like a pig, uh, you're wanting everything on the menu. You've never found a happy eater in a person who wants everything on the menu. They're always dissatisfied because there's not enough room for everything. <laughs> right? And there isn't enough room in a life for, you want to call it, everything. You can't be an Olympian at 27 different sports and also do A, B, C, D, E, F and G. Life at an individual level is a specialization. And that means that certain things are sacrificed. Again, in the standard concept of marriage, if you marry one woman, you forget all other women. That's the sacrifice. And the same way with a career. You, can, you, know, you tend to hold down one job, ordinarily, and you sacrifice other possibilities. The key is to find the universal purpose. And when you discover that, or even while you're on the way, then the individual purpose supports that or is an expression of it. And it will be in accordance with your talents and attributes. So, and I just give you a ludicrously exaggerated situation. If you take somebody like Pavarotti, he wouldn't have made a good scrum half for Italy. Might have made a good prop, though. No, he would have made a great goalkeeper. <laughs> you wouldn't have got the ball around him. The fact that he had such a glorious voice, the natural thing for him was to express that voice and bring delight to millions. You have certain talents and attributes, and you also have certain weaknesses built in that individuality. There is a way of expressing that individuality which gloriously manifests the talents, attributes and qualities. And that is important to discover that as well. It's not a matter of being wise only. It needs to be expressed gloriously. So the way the Shankaracharya put it, and I think it's one of the most beautiful statements I've ever heard, he said, effectively through philosophy, he said, it is possible to be a companion of the self, i.e. companion of truth, and a master of the world simultaneously. So that is, you know who you are, and you participate fully and magnificently, expressing yourself uniquely. If you really connect with this, it's the end of all competition. See, when you don't know this, you're always looking at the person beside you and thinking, I'm not as good as them, or I'm better than them, and trying to beat them. But the story of the talents is an outstanding story, and I'll just say it in brief. One man had been allocated five talents, another two, and another one. And the man who had five doubled it to ten, and he was praised by his master. The one who had two had doubled it to four, and he was praised by his master. And the one who got one had hidden it out of fear, and he took the elevator down to the hot place. All right? Now, the point about it is this. The one who has two does not have to beat the guy who's got five. That's not the purpose of life. If you get two, your job is to turn it into four. It's nothing to do with anybody else. It's to do with you and what you were allocated. Let's say the guy who got two 
doubled it to four. So he's plus two. And let's say the guy who got five added three to it. He cannot argue that he's done much better than the other guy. He can't say, well, I'm plus three, the other guy's only plus two. Because his duty, obligation or purpose was to go from five to ten. So one of the purposes of your life is to discover what your talents, qualities, attributes are. And let's say we call it Dublin, but to manifest them gloriously. But you won't be able to do that without discovering who you are. Because without that knowledge, you'll take it too seriously. Because it's just a game. It's just a game. There is no such thing as an accountant. There is no such thing as a mother. These are just roles being played. There is no Hamlet. And in the same way as there's no Hamlet, there is no mother. The first thing you have to do is find out what's behind the mother. And again, I've used this example before. If I just take my wife, sometimes when I look at her, I realize that I know her as wife. But sometimes I see the children looking at her and they know her as mother. They haven't a clue about her as wife. And they never will. And sometimes I've seen her mother or her father look at her and they know her as daughter. And I'll never know her as daughter. And sometimes I see her sister look at her and she sees her as sister. And I'll never know Anne sister. All I know is Anne wife. But behind Anne wife and sister and daughter and mother or something else. That's the really interesting bit. That's the bit that's really worth knowing. Then you really know. Behind all your roles, there's something else. There's some unifying element out of which all this hangs. And if you discover that, then you are satisfied in yourself. And satisfied in yourself, you will express it in everything. When you ordinarily ask somebody, why did you choose to be a quantity of surveyor or something like that, they say, I thought it would make me happy. But there's nothing in this creation that can make you happy. Nothing at all. The real thing is to be happy and then express it in everything. Not to be miserable and look for it in everything. A miserable person can never find happiness because they wouldn't recognize it. So the first thing is to be happy and then express it in everything. Or be yourself and express it in everything. Does that help or does that answer? Yeah. yeah? Okay. This lady here. Do you think this is all, this is miserable, how we're, do you think it's all learned behaviour? Yes, but we're not going to blame our teachers. <laughs> it is all learned because it's not your nature. So you have learned it. And unfortunately you've accepted it as true. It is reinforced by, if you want to call it, the ignorance of other people. So a child would want to have a remarkable level of awareness of its own being to withstand the ignorance that is poured on it by its parents and its teachers and society at large. But conditioning only operates up to a point. The way the Shankaracharya puts it is the knowledge of who you truly are resides in you. 
It's never actually lost. It's just covered over. And because it's just covered over, it's there seeking its fulfillment. And this is what, under ignorance, drives you to accumulate and do all sorts of things. What's required from you is to examine all of that. I give this as an example. Maybe about ten years ago, I noticed that there was quite a level of dissatisfaction in this being. And the mind, very frequently, you would wish the life to be different than it was. So I wanted either more time for myself or less time. I wanted more money or less money. You know, when you're having a cup of coffee or you're driving from A to B or you're just waiting for the old bus, you would think about these things. Well, gosh, wouldn't it be nice to have the old thatched cottage down in the west of Ireland? And then the next day you think, oh, God, all that rain. No, I don't think I'd like it down the west of Ireland. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, maybe south of Spain. Rats, skin cancer. Okay, not, not the south of Spain. Anyway, I, this mind would occupy itself with all these sort of fanciful little dreams. But always in the belief that if I got those things, I would be happier than I am now. One day, noticing that the mind did occupy itself in this way and seemed to drain itself of all its energy, I decided I'm going to examine this. I'm going to say, can I prove to myself that if I have more money, I will be happier? And I couldn't. Interesting enough, I couldn't also prove to myself that I would be less happy if I had less money. I couldn't prove myself at all that this would definitely be the outcome. And if I had the mortgage paid off or if I had more time to myself, could I be sure that I'd be happier? And I couldn't prove it. And in the end, I realized I couldn't prove any of this. So why was I desiring all these things that I was unsure would lead to my happiness? So I decided to abandon them all and just be happy. That's why I look so miserable these days. <laughs> you know, just to be happy. It's the simplest thing in the world, to be happy. You don't need anything to be happy. And then express it in everything. And stop resisting things. We go into a room and we think, oh, I don't want to talk to him or her. I'd like to talk to them, but maybe they don't like talking to me. You know, it's all so complicated. Why don't I just go in? The universal purpose, from what I can gather, the key is you try to find that first. Yes. And then the rest falls into place. Uh, absolutely. Okay, so how do you find it? <laughs> well, it's like this. Let's say you had blindfolds on. And I asked you, can you see the magnolia walls? You can't. So the first thing is to remove that which stops you seeing. And again, just to take the great statement from Jesus, having eyes they see not, having ears they hear not, neither do they understand. Now we've definitely got the eyes and the ears, but we don't understand. Now if you have eyes and you can't see, then there's something covering. And what's required is to remove that cover. Not to attain anything or become better than you are, but to remove the covering. So let's say this is the afternoon and it's sunny and the windows are filthy and the sun does not pour into the room. We don't have to work on the sun, but we do have to work on the window. So we have to remove the dirt on the window and then the sunlight will pour in of its own accord. In the same way, you and I have got 
dirt, if you want to put it like that, in the mind in the form of limiting ideas and prejudices and all that sort of stuff. And we've got dirt in our hearts in the form of likes and dislikes and all sorts of things, unresolved issues. So the simplest and the easiest way to discover the truth of yourself is meditation. Because what meditation does is it cleans up the being. As I was saying to a group last night, it is spiritual daz. <laughs> right? There, there, <laughs> there is no stain on the mind or the heart that can resist meditation. And there's a very simple reason for that. Let's say a child is agitated and you wish it to go asleep. Well, there are lullabies or there are sounds which are conducive to sleep. Meat loaves bat out of hell is not one of them. The combination of sounds there is not conducive to going asleep. But there are other sounds and the combination of them will induce or be conducive to sleep. In mantra-based meditation, there's a combination of sounds which are productive of a level of peace and stillness, to use Jesus' words, which passes all understanding, which bring the being to absolute rest, where in total wakefulness, the mind and the heart subside, and there's just presence. Just presence. And in that presence, that simple, undiluted presence, you know who you are. You know your very nature. You've answered all the questions. And then the idea is that having known that, you then express it gloriously and limitlessly in whatever life presents to you. So meditation is the master key. Meditation, let's say in the school, is a half an hour twice a day, so there are another 23 hours, and we knock off six for sleep, or whatever excessive amount of hours you do sleep. So we've now got another 17 hours, in which we have undertaken all sorts of obligations, and we, ha we need to participate. So there are ways of participating. There were eight of them that I mentioned, you know, letting go, surrender, learn to play, be fearless, all of these. And all of these clean up the being and remove the limitations. And they're all supportive or helpful. So, all of those will work. The school of philosophy has a particular system and other schools of philosophy or religions have different systems. And the idea is to find a system that suits you. For example, as an individual, this being likes rugby. It has a form and a shape to it and a quality to it that brings delight to this heart. Tiddlywinks doesn't have the same effect, <laughs> right? Nor does cricket, because there's nothing happening. <laughs> All right? But for other people, cricket is everything. The spiritual journey, if we just call it that, or the journey to realization, you need to find a journey that suits your nature. You should not make it hard on yourself. If you ask me to watch cricket, I start to imagine apartment blocks, just where they're bowling. If you ask me to watch rugby, I won't even blink for an hour and a half. Even if you put onions under my nose, <laughs> right, I will not blink. Because something in the nature really connects with that particular sport. The job for you is, in accordance with your nature, to find 
that path, we call it up the mountain. Some people take the old scenic route, and that's very nice for them. Well, everything in the creation is limited. Is limited. And because it is limited, you should only enjoy it to a limit. If I just use this very simple example, let's say I love strawberries and my wife is besotted by me. Right? I love strawberries, she loves me. In her desire to fulfill my human existence, I get strawberries for breakfast. I get them at 11 o'clock. I get them at 1 o'clock. I get them in the afternoon at half time in the rugby match. And I get them, I get them for supper and there's also one on the pillow. <laughs> a chocolate covered one right? because <laughs> she used to be in the hospitality business right? so after a week or two of this I never want to see another strawberry in my life it's gone from delight in strawberry to boredom to pain <laughs> everything in the creation is limited so we can only yield that limit if you want to live in this creation, you do need a certain amount of variety. Albeit, we could say that apples are nutritious. To eat only apples, the body would react to it. So there needs to be variety. With the combination of variety and measure, things stay fresh and interesting. If you have strawberries every so often, you really enjoy them every so often. There's only so many rugby matches you can watch and then the pleasure begins to decline. I haven't found that limit yet. <laughs> Let's say we acknowledge that. That that which is limited can only produce the limited. So a pint of milk cannot produce, you know, four and a half tons of cheese. If there's a limit in the cause or the source, there must be a limit in the effect. But if I ask you, what happiness do you want? You will tell me you want limitless happiness. If I said to you, do you want it to be permanent as well as limitless? You will say yes. But everything in the creation is limited and transient. So the limited and the transient cannot possibly produce the eternal and limitless. If you wish to fulfill your life, you're going to have to look elsewhere. You're not going to find it in the strawberries or the rugby. You're going to have to look elsewhere. You're going to have to look to that which is eternal and limitless. And so therefore it mustn't be of this creation because everything in this creation is limited and transient. So, that's very interesting. So how do we do that? Here I am participating in life, most of the time involved in the transient and the limited. How am I to find the eternal and limited? And as I said, the master key is meditation. It is the simplest way. Meditation is for all of mankind, not for a few. It is so universal that everybody can meditate and everybody can get the full benefits. Now, it does require practice and commitment over time and all of that. But it has the means of bringing a person to the eternal and limitless in their own experience. If you say to me, do I know that there is the eternal and the limitless? I will say, yes. 
without any shadow of doubt, because it has been known in experience. And when you know that eternal and limitless inexperience, and you know that it is your own self, that is the end of all striving, the end of all fear. There's just complete contentment now. And the happy man, or the content man, is not capable of keeping it to himself. That's the fantastic thing. Happiness overflows, and so does love. It overflows. So it starts overflowing. And suddenly those around you start feeling this love and this happiness. And they are bathed in it as well. And then you start getting invited to more and more parties. <laughs> you know? And what happens is, and this is a fantastic thing to say like this, you know, <laughs> you brighten up the world. Isn't that a fantastic thing to do? Isn't it to brighten up the world? Have you ever considered, when you walk into a room, does it get brighter or darker? <laughs> and when you leave the room, does it get really bright? <laughs> when you hold a baby, you brighten up. Everybody brightens up holding a baby. What happens when they hold you? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you have discovered the eternal and the limitless, or we can call it love or wisdom, whatever you want to call it, then you will brighten up the world. And that's a fantastic thing to do. That everybody you meet is brightened by your existence. And I'm sure you know people, there are a few people, who wherever they go, there's light and happiness. And there are other people you know, and after about ten minutes with them, you think about euthanasia. And, and whether you should order the coffin. And they're just so dark that, that you become dark in their presence. But these happy people are not meditating enough. Yes, they have it naturally. But if they did meditate, they would influence the world rather than the few people they meet. They have it to a point. You see, you can be like a Socrates two and a half thousand years later and numerous people throughout the Western world are studying his words to try and understand what he meant. So, two and a half thousand years after his death, he still enlightens the world. Not fantastic? Now, we all know, you know, Aunt Nelly, who was a great sport and you know, brightened up things. But, you know, in two and a half thousand years, they won't be studying Aunt Nellie's diaries. <laughs> <laughs> Went to the shops today. <laughs> so, that's it. Yes, anybody else? There's a lady back there. One of the concepts that I get a bit confused about is the great philosophers like Socrates, for example, when he was discussing all the things that we're still studying so many years later, he was using his mind and I'm assuming that he would have had to have thought those things to use the higher intelligence and then communicate them. So therefore, I think, oh Grant, well that's great, I'm going to use my mind, use higher intelligence and try and understand the world to try and reach a greater truth. And then that's where I get terribly confused and things get all muddled. So 
So I'm thinking that I need to use my mind and higher intelligence. I need to use thoughts to figure things out. Yes. And, you know, those are those thoughts, which is why I'm here this evening. But yet, I'm supposed to meditate and yeah. not use my mind. So, yes. therefore, I kind of get a bit confused. I'm like, right, well, what am I supposed to be doing? Trying to think here or not think? And yes. uh. <laughs> right. Well, you know, sometimes you go into a badly run bar or something like that, and there is a sort of a, a, a cloth which the person uses to wipe the bar. And it was last cleaned about eight weeks ago. And all it does is rearrange the dirt on the bar counter. Do you recognize that? They move the dirt around with the cloth. But it doesn't become any cleaner. Now, our mind is like that dishcloth. Ordinarily, when we think, we're just moving the dirt around. That's all we're doing. Because we're seeing everything through prejudice and prior knowledge and prior experience. To be very controversial, one of the things that Mr. McLaren said is you should never judge a man by his past. How about that? Most people think, what else could you judge him by? Well, you judge the man in front of you, or you meet the man in front of you, not the one you hold in your mind. Your mind is just a collection of memories. These are partial and normally prejudiced. I'll just make this up, and it's probably not true in your case. Let's say a drunken tramp approached you. There would be a certain reaction in your being because of knowledge you hold. Knowledge actually in the form of ignorance. Let's say a drunken tramp approaches another drunken tramp. Do you think they'll have the same reaction? Not at all. So who's meeting who? You see, you think you're meeting a tramp. And that's an error. It's a big error. No child, no young child has ever met a tramp, as you would meet a tramp. What Socrates did was, in using the mind, cleaned the mind. He did it by inquiry. Do you attend the Plato or the Socrates group on Saturday morning? Oh, all right. Well, if you did, and you looked at the words of Socrates or Plato, and you participated in the group, you will come out knowing less. What would have happened is that some of your ignorance would have been dissolved. Wisdom is not the accumulation of knowledge. It is the elimination of ignorance. It is an undoing. So wisdom is not an achievement. It's an unachievement. It is the removal of ignorance. Now, what happens in meditation is that that's what meditation does. It dissolves the ignorance. And it's like this. Let's say, have you ever overeaten? Oh, yeah. <laughs> All right. Don't say it so enthusiastically. All right. So you've overeaten. Have you done that more than once in your life? Now, say the first time you overeat and there was a pain afterwards... And you said, God, I shouldn't do that. I just shouldn't do that. It's ridiculous. But you did it again. And again and again and again. Now, if I said to you, have you ever put your hand in the fire? And maybe as a child you did. But how many times did you have to do it? To know not to put your hand in the fire. Once. And let's say the reason why it was once, because the experience was so total and so complete that 
the knowledge is burnt into your mind. <laughs> Do not put your hand into the fire. And there is no benefit. You can't see any benefit. Now, with the overeating, the experience is not as total and complete. And there's a second flaw, which is it yields initial pleasure. <laughs> right. Now, and what Socrates actually says is the ignorant man only sees the immediate consequence. The wise man sees the full consequence. And the example he uses is, if you can imagine a soldier looking into the distance and seeing the enemy's army coming towards him, and they're about five miles away, he says, sure, they'll be no problem, they're all tiny. <laughs> so that's what the ignorant man thinks so the ignorant man thinks oh sure listen to profiteroles will be fantastic and he can't see the size of the pain two hours down the road the wise man sees the profiteroles and the pain the crook only attempts to rob the bank because he doesn't see himself being caught. If he could see that he was going to be caught, he wouldn't bother. This is how we repeat ignorance over and over again. Anyway, with meditation, what happens is the mind is cleaned, so that you are not fooled by the little enemy down the road. <laughs> now, with the mind cleaned, you then use this cleaned mind to participate in life. The mind has to be used, because there are all sorts of possibilities. Like, let's say, a room. You can decorate a room 50 different ways. There isn't one way to decorate a room. So the mind needs to be used. It needs to take into account lots of factors. But what's important is to clean the mind. Now, let's say you attend part one or part two, is it? Or part one. All right. Well, at the beginning of the part one class, there's an exercise every evening. Do you know what that exercise is asking you to do? It's asking you to put down all your knowledge, all your past, all your prejudices, all your feelings about this and that. So that with a clean mind and heart, you can consider the statements of the wise or scriptures. Now what normally happens is, for the duration of the exercise, we put it all down and then... The tutor says, that's fine. You think, right. <laughs> okay. And 30 seconds, oh, I couldn't agree with that. That's the greatest load of rubbish I've ever heard. <laughs> oh, that doesn't tie with my experience. So we're not really putting it down. In philosophy, you have to approach it with a clean mind and heart. There is no difficulty. Meditation cleans the mind and heart, and then you use the mind and heart to further develop understanding, etc., etc. That's the way it works. Okay. Would you just say a little more about not achieving? Mm. I'm just a bit concerned that if we're not achieving, or some people are not achieving, we might well end up doing our own heart operations. And maybe I've misunderstood that. Yes. So will you just expand a bit more on that? Please? Yes. There are two possible ways of looking, let's say, at the human being. One is that he's imperfect and strives to improve himself. 
and the other is that he is perfect and strives to express that perfection. Do you have any children? All right. Well, when you held the first baby for the first time, you will have looked at perfection. That's what you'll have seen. You'll have looked at perfection. If somebody says we can do a little bit of liposuction on this thing, right, or we can straighten the nose or something like that, you would have said, I'm not interested. He or she is perfect as they are. Don't you do anything to them. So you, because of the openness of heart and the love you would have felt, would have acknowledged the perfection in that being. Now, as they get older, we tend to forget that perfection, that essential perfection. We begin to connect more and more with their behavior. And while they are essentially perfect, their behavior may not be perfect. And we start saying, you're a bad boy, rather than you are perfect, and that is bad behavior. Do you see the difference? And then the child comes to believe that he's not perfect, but is bad or alternatively bad and good. He's no longer loved for being himself, but are simply loved for his behavior. So he seeks to behave in a way that wins the approval of everybody. And acknowledging his own inherent defects, so-called, as he sees it, he then strives to improve, to achieve. And this is a very sad way to live. It's much better to acknowledge your own perfection and then seek to express it in a way that is natural to your particular nature. So, what you find is that people often take up a career with a view to finding happiness in the career. And there's no happiness in any career, as we all have found. Anybody's worked for any length of time. There's no happiness in any job or any career. What you look for is that career or job in which it is most easy to express your happiness, not as a place to find it. Now, not only do we do it with career, but we do it if we want a spouse or a partner for life. We go looking for somebody to make us happy. And for any of you who's been married, you know that it's also a complete delusion. Because <laughs> nobody, but nobody makes you happy. The real way, if you do wish to marry, and a lot of people do wish to marry, what you look to is to find somebody that you wish to share your happiness with, not somebody who's under some obligation to be a performing seal and make you happy. <laughs> because nobody, but nobody, can dance to your tune. It's yours only, so nobody can dance to it. So it's a very important issue. And the philosophy of the school of philosophy is that you are perfect. The human being is perfect, that his self is perfect. But having forgotten that, he then strives to become perfect. So his whole life is one of success, failure, attaining, not attaining, attempting to get there when he's already there. So it's like the person who has the glass on top of their head and they're looking for their glasses everywhere. What they have to do is stop looking, and suddenly they become aware that they're there. So you have to stop looking for happiness, stop seeking to achieve, and immediately you are successful. The minute you stop striving to succeed, you will be successful. The child is successful, 
the child running around the schoolyard is already a success. He doesn't have to pass exams to become a success. He is, or she is, a successful human being already. Instead of striving to achieve, believing in your own imperfection, you now desire, as I said, to express your happiness or your love, or you want to respond to a need. So again, I have tutored out in South Africa at times, and I met some fantastic young people there. And one young man said to me, I asked him, what was he going to do? He was about 16 years of age. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to be a judge, because this country needs honest judges. Now, that's a fantastic way to pick your career. Instead of saying, I'm going to be an accountant because I want a BMW with sliding roof and quadraphonic stereo. So what he saw was a need in his nation and wished to fulfill that need. You're surrounded by needs. If you don't strive, it doesn't mean you will be inactive. Once you have a, a mind that is still and a heart that is open, rest assured your life will be very busy. Very, very busy. But it won't be your personal plan. You will be responding to the universal plan. We all have private plans for our lives. Because our private plans are private, they never work out. Because there's a universal plan and we're not in charge of the universe. So you can't make the bus turn up on time. You can't make somebody love you. You can't make your heart beat until you're 85 or 86. You can't make anything happen. As an individual, you're totally dependent. So what is best is to find out what is the plan and join the plan. Like if you were an actor or actress on the stage, you should find out what is the play that's currently being performed and what is my role in it, and then you should speak your words. Now what we're doing is we're in the middle of Hamlet and we're playing the part of Lee Van Cleef in The Good, Bad and the Ugly. And we're wondering why the audience is walking out on us. <laughs> we're playing the wrong part most of the time. Because we have a private plan, all based on a wrong idea about ourselves. And if your heart is full of love and your mind is full of reason, you find your happiness expressing itself everywhere. The happy are not idle. We sort of have an, a false idea of happiness, which is lying on a couch on a Sunday afternoon doing nothing. That's known as idleness, not happiness, right? <laughs> or it also can be known as exhaustion, but it's not happiness. When you're happy, you want to do things. If you think of a mental asylum, people do very little in mental asylum, assuming that they're very depressed. But when you're happy, you want to express it. You want to reveal it in speech and in action and activity, all sorts of things. So, that help? Yeah, okay, very good. Anybody else? Yes, at the back there. When you're already well down the road in life and you don't have these ambitions, and most people in this room are already in a slot, 
that you can't really get out of. What's your suggestion as to how to make the best of what you've got? Yes, well, I wouldn't respond to such a depressing question as that. <laughs> right. <laughs> to make the best of what you've got and you're stuck in a slot. You sound like a bent penny in a vending machine. Right? <laughs> so I'm going to elevate the question. Right? <laughs> and then we shall consider it. First of all, you're never stuck. We have ideas about, I've only got X number of years to live, so it's not worth my while changing to A or B or C or D. This is just simply untrue. It's not a matter of length of time. So that's the first point. The second thing is, one should never think of it that you have to change the activities of your life, necessarily. Sometimes it might be like, so if we found Pavarotti playing scrum half for Italy and he was singing during the scrums, we might actually say to him, I think there's a better role for you. But that would be very obvious. What you can do is you can lend a quality to what you do. So a person can undertake an activity for money or for fame or glory or something like that. But you can also do it for love. You can do it to care for others, to reduce misery in the world. So, the way the Shankaracharya put it, and I'm going to use a, a Sanskrit term first of all, he said the most important thing about an action is not the size of it. It's the underlying Bahawana, which is the technical term. And Bahawana means the emotional ground. The attitude underlying the action. So, let's take a very small action, a birthday card. If you buy a birthday card for somebody, you think it's only a small action. But when a child makes a birthday card for, for you, and he, albeit your name is misspelled and it's crooked and it doesn't stand up properly, it is a great act. The way I think Mother Teresa put it is, there are no great acts. There are only small acts undertaken with great love. Isn't that fantastic? So, you see, everybody can have a great life if they have greatness of Bahamana, greatness of emotions. That's one way of looking at it. If you're not naturally a devotional person, so that you wouldn't find it easy to respond to the needs of others, then you can take a different approach. What you do is you raise everything to the highest standard. So everything is done to excellence. And i just give a very simple thing. There may be somebody you know, and he walks with remarkable dignity. They carry their body beautifully. We all know somebody who just walks with remarkable stature. And when you look at them, you say, God, that's so beautiful. Or it reminds you of the dignity of man or something like that. Or maybe there's somebody you know, and their voice is so gentle. So unbelievably gentle, has no push in it at all, and you're attracted to it or you love it. You can raise things to the highest standard. So why not be the gentlest man possible for the rest of your life? Or the most responsive man, or whatever. So you can take a, a noble ideal and let it pervade your life. You know, Nelson Mandela, 
the thing that has always struck me was his capacity for forgiveness. The fact that he could be incarcerated for 27 years, come out and say, let's build a new South Africa with the perpetrators who incarcerated them. So I think that's just remarkable, a remarkable level of forgiveness. Now, with one quality raised to a very high level, a world-class human being, inspiring perhaps generations to come. You only have to take one quality, one standard, raise it to the highest level, and then you're a world-class human being. And anybody can do that. Let's say I was an irritable or impatient man. If I truly decided to rid myself of irritability, then surely I could do it in a year. In one year, you could get rid of any idiosyncrasy. If you really gave yourself to it. So imagine if that everybody who met you was reminded of patience of the highest order. That would be a fantastic way to live one's life. The few remaining seconds that you have. <laughs> Does that make sense? What people try and do is they try to change the activities. Sometimes, for male, he sort of has an image in his life, or an image for his life. So he mar marries a particular woman, he undertakes a particular career, he tries to accumulate a particular amount of wealth. He gets to 45 or 50 and he thinks, God, hasn't worked out right. So he thinks it must be a different woman, you know, a different <laughs> career and a different level of wealth. And it's not a matter of changing the activities, but a matter of changing the man. So it's always a matter of looking within, because once the man changes, then the experience of life changes. The lady once came to me, and she was very depressed, might be too strong a word, but she was an unhappy young lady. And she said she hated her job, she hated Ireland, and she hated all sorts of things. So she said that she was going to emigrate to Australia. And I said, the tragedy about that is that the one who hates is going to get off the plane in Melbourne or Sydney, right? So I said, what you should do is you should learn to love your job and you should learn to love your nation and then be free to emigrate. Because if you do then go to Australia, what will get off the plane will be a lover and not a hater. That's the important thing. Not accepting responsibility within ourselves we seek the world to dish up happiness for us. Now, the world is under no responsibility to dish up any happiness for us. But we are under an absolute responsibility to spread our happiness over the world. It's our job to lighten the world, not the world's job to lighten us. This is man's great capacity. Again, in the Bible, it talks about Jesus was the light of the world. And he gave that light to man so that he might enlighten the world. Is that all right? Yeah. The idea about not being driven, not looking for an outcome, 
if you look at some, say, famous people who discovered things or invented things in history, like somebody like Fleming who discovered, who just said penicillin, and the whole world benefited mm. from it. Now, in a lot of cases that they were really driven people, and not to mention the ones that didn't succeed, is their behaviour that not to be promoted, if you like, that they're doing something. They're not maybe following what you know your presentation tonight may have said, that the way they should be more sort of relaxed and just wait for something to First of all, it's not a matter of relaxed and just waiting. Relaxed is excellent. So waiting at the bus stop where buses don't go by is not particularly useful, right? Now, I'm not able to comment on that particular person. There's a difference between being dedicated and being driven. Is it Fleming? Is that the name of the man? Yeah, okay. So Fleming, so I, I can't judge him. But let's say if he was dedicated, that is excellent. That is the willingness to give all to something. It's a surrender. So it's a willingness to fully participate. All right? So that is excellent. Driven is not so excellent. And to give you a sense of it, Isaac Newton discovered the law of gravity. I was the first in the Western world to formulate the law of gravity. Do you know when he discovered it? When the university was closed. When he couldn't work. And he's sitting in his back garden with nothing going on in his mind. Now, if he had been driven, what is the law of gravity? I wish these bloody apples would stop falling because they're distracting me while I'm trying to work out. Does that make sense? So you want to be very careful. When you're driven, you will find yourself unable to respond to what's in front of you. When you have a plan, plan that you're attached to, then it causes tension, and you desire to control others and suppress things so that your plan can be fulfilled. Let's say you have a plan for your life. and I'll say it in terms of God. God has a much bigger plan for you than you have for you. His plan for you was not to turn out to be an accountant and to have a house and put in some decking when you're 48 and clear the mortgage when you were 63 and cut down that apple tree. It's a much greater plan. As I said, you don't build a Ferrari and then drive it at two miles an hour. If it has that unbelievable power under the bonnet, it's meant to be driven at 200 miles per hour. So what is the capacity of that? Well, one of the things is he, he can love everybody. There is no limit to his love. So he can love 6 billion people. And he can understand everything. He can come to understand the whole universe. This is his great capacity. So there is greatness in store for every human being. And every time you hold a baby, you recognize that. You can see the potentiality for greatness. But very few of us ever get to realize it. And that's the tragedy. Is that okay? Yeah. So, thank you very much. Thank you.